This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, everybody. This is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producers are Patrick Antonetti and Sean Cherry. Two guests this week. Uh, I really, really enjoyed uh, this episode. Just two really, really smart women uh, with super interesting jobs. First up, Renee Paquette. Uh, you will know her probably as Renee Young. She worked in the WWE for nearly eight years as a reporter, as a host, as a commentator. Um, and she discusses her journey leaving the WWE, uh, dealing with COVID-19 this year, her relationship with her husband, John Good, who is better known in the, this world as John Moxley who's at AEW. Um, I can't thank Renee enough. She gave me loads of time on this podcast, and uh, it was such a fun conversation, so I think you're going to enjoy it. Renee is followed by Stephanie Reddy, who is a Turner Sports and NBA TV reporter. Stephanie just um, got back from the bubble in Orlando, so she talks about her reporting experiences there, Um, the decision to go inside the bubble, particularly if you're someone who has a family, how she sees the pro-athlete movement heading forward and what she thinks uh, or how she thinks the NBA is going to come out of this. Uh, Stephanie Reddy uh, just was an exceptional uh, analyst when she worked um, uh, doing Hornets games. I hope to see her doing that again, but she's got a kick-ass job now uh, uh, for uh, NBA TV and Turner. So Renee Young and Stephanie Reddy. Coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right. As I said at the top, I'm very excited to have Renee Paquette on this podcast. I have interviewed Renee Young many times. I'm not sure I've ever interviewed Renee Paquette, although I I have met Renee Paquette in real life in uh, my other job in Toronto. And she is lovely and delightful. And uh, I think there's a reason why people are... uh, um, so attached to her when, uh, when they meet her, Renee Paquette at the, in terms of, uh, promoting something has an upcoming cooking book, messy in the kitchen, my guide to eating deliciously, hosting fabulously and drinking copiously. Uh, according to Renee Paquette, the book will be coming out, uh, closer to next spring. We'll certainly talk a little bit about that in addition to many other stuff. And uh, I'm so pleased to be joined by Renee Paquette on the Sports Media Podcast. Hello, Renee. Hi. Oh, my gosh. I'm still, like, I'm still not used to just hearing people say my real name. It really, it sparks some joy, I would say. I feel so good about it. Like, I feel like ever since I've switched my name back to my legal government name, um, I just keep having, like, guess who's back? Back again. Shady's back. That's just been, like, in my head over and over. I feel like I'm back in business, baby. I know. What will your name? What will your name be next week, Renee? Renee Smith, Renee Brown, Renee Jones. Who knows? Shit. Honestly, who knows? I really was like kind of going back and forth. Like, do I go by Renee Good? Do I? You know, I, I just couldn't figure it out. And I was like, I'm just going to go back to the OG. I've got too many other names happening. 
Um, so, you know, obviously legally I am Renee Good, but professionally I'm back to being Renee Paquette. So take that, everybody in Canada. There's so much to talk to. There's so much to get to when it comes to your life, which has been, I mean, very much newsworthy in the last couple of months. But let's forget about Renee Paquette for a second and talk about Richard Deitch. So, um, you, yes. yeah, you did the Token CEO podcast. Uh, it's Eric and Nardini, obviously, very well-known podcast at Barstool. You did the Sports Illustrated podcast, which used to be my podcast with that, that evil Jimmy Traina. I'm just kidding. Jimmy and I are friends. <laughs> um, so did I, I – you are a big get at this moment. So I feel I screwed up royally no. by in my, in my interactions with you not figuring out when you might have done these other podcasts to get you first. Don't you think that's a terrible job of booking by me? Well – so it's not because I, I actually feel like I take a little bit of responsibility for that because I feel like there's been a few people like, you know, obviously a lot of people want to, they want to do the podcast. They want to do the interview. Everyone wants to like get the scoop, but I, you know, I, I don't know. I feel like I'm just kind of like, you know, haphazardly jumping on things here and there. And I've had a few people being like, wait, I thought you were going to do my podcast or I thought we were doing this. I'm like, wait, I didn't. I don't think that we agreed to it that way. I'm not really sure. I didn't really think about the order of um, things coming out. So my uh, my apologies. No, you have nothing. I owe you. No, you don't owe me. I, it's my fault. I should have. Yeah, I should have sort of figured out <laughs> when the first one was. And you know, you have to be first in market. That's always uh, that's always the key. All right. So we're we're, sure. we're going to try to have at least a, we'll try to get some interesting things from this uh, this conversation. Regard regar- <laughs> regardless of. That does- though doesn't yeah. it it's so hard when you're trying to interview somebody and you know they're talking about the same stuff over and over and you're like okay how can i find like the interesting take or something else to do it's never an easy spot to be right. in I, so I, uh, i'll try to make yeah it you forced me you. to listen to train interview with you I'm like 44 minutes my my god <laughs> you two got went on you two you, i know we shut the ship for Jesus a long time Christ, gab, gab yeah. festival i did this look chatty kathy i know i think the the Jews were in the desert less than you and Trina were going at it, but whatever. Um, <laughs> all right. So let, here, let, you have had a crazy year. So this is where I sort of want to um, start. First off, and a very serious thing, you um, you had the coronavirus. And so, and one, I appreciate, you talked yeah. about this on Jimmy's podcast, that you, you were public about it. I know the WWE did not like that, um, which to me is a very foolish um, sort of thought process on their part because there's a real – responsibility an individual responsibility to let people know who might have interacted with you that you sure that you have that but i have um i i know people who have had it and my niece had it and so she's recovered now but i would say she has not fully recovered and even months later there are times when she'll get shortness of breath there are times when her heart rate mm-hmm. is a little faster than it should be and she's in the medical profession, so she's very sort of hypersensitive to when her body changes. I wonder, I wonder right. for you, and I know you had this a couple months ago, um, ha- are you still feeling it all? Have you, have you had any after effects of this? Yeah. Yeah, and you know, it's, I, I, I do think that I am still feeling some, like, repercussions of it. And it's honestly hard to tell. I mean, yeah, I'm not in the medical field by any stretch of the nature. So sometimes I'm like, man, is it just in my head? Am I just feeling this way? Is it just because the world is different and weird and scary now that it, like, manifests itself in your body in a different way? Like, it's hard to really pinpoint it. But there's definitely times that, like, 
I get aches in weird places, like my elbows hurt or my jaw hurts, um, my knees hurt. Um, I've just been getting different weird aches and pains. I'm getting like a lot of bruises, but I don't know if that's unrelated. I, I really don't know. And yeah, I still sometimes have a shortness of breath. Um, but I, I don't know if that's just like the stress and the anxiety, like literally right before you called, I'm like reading this article about a dude that I, I didn't get the whole way through it, but I think that he might've been one of the naysayers of COVID and then he got hit with it and now kind of sitting on the other side of the fence being like, Oh no, this is like very real that, it, you know, you want to read those stories, and you, you know, it's, you know, like doom scrolling, wanting to like see what's going on with people. But you read that, and you're like, oh, my God, is it going to happen to me again? What if I get hit with it again? Is it going to hit me worse? And, you know, it's just all these stresses. But, um, yeah, I, I do feel like I have lingering effects. My body just gets tired a lot more. Um, like when I'm working out and stuff, I just think my muscles don't recover the same way that they used to. But uh, maybe I'm just lazy and in quarantine. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I think it's. I think we still have to figure out exactly what the – the long-term impact of, of this, but you know, your, your, your age yeah. is helpful. You're 35. That's a pretty good age bracket to, for long-term, um, recovery. So I'm sure you'll do this anyway. Just, you know, like stay in touch with your doctor doctors yeah. and sort of listen to your, your body to see, um, for sure. You know, one of the things that, one of the things that I found really helpful, um, was our doctor at WWE, um, had recommended to me and also, uh, another friend of mine had recommended as well to get the oxygen monitor. So you can just order it off of Amazon. And that was sort of a, a comfort to when I just like, wasn't quite feeling right. I'm laying in bed and just kind of like, Oh God, is this going to get worse? What's happening? It was a comfort to have that and just sort of be able to monitor my oxygen levels and know that they were okay. So if anyone's feeling that way, just Amazon Prime it. You'll get it the next day, and you can at least have peace of mind with that. Yeah, my niece has that too. Um, I, I totally recommend that. So you can sort of you can monitor your uh, your oxygen levels. My sense is when you sent this out to people, letting people know um, that you were just sort of doing that on your own instinct to say, "Hey, listen, people, I've uh, I have this, and I I want you to know that." Probably not thinking at all about perhaps your employer. Perhaps thinking, not thinking at all that your employer would not want that out. Is do I have that read accurate? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't think about that at all. Like, like that was definitely not my intent with going public with that. It was just for like, shit, I got it, man. It's going around. Tons of people in the world have it. It was, you know, it's not like it's this rare disease. It's, you know, it's literally shutting down the entire world. And uh, so another reason why I really want to tell people is. Um, I think people are very, like, morbidly curious about it, that they want to know the symptoms. Like, so there was even part of me when I got sick that I was like, oh, should I do, like, an Instagram live, like, daily to, like, let people know what the symptoms are, what's going, through, going on? Because so the, the first, like, kind of celebrity that wasn't Tom Hanks that we found out had it was um, Colton Underwood from The Bachelor. So I would go on his Instagram to try to get updates. To be like, Is he okay? Like, what's going on? Because, you know, I feel like he was, like, very active on social media. So I was sort of, like, leaning into, like, to see what his symptoms were and what were going on. So I sort of felt that sort of similar responsibility of, like, I want to let people know that I had it in case people have questions. And tons of people did reach out to me to, like, to know how it, want to know how I was feeling, want to know what my symptoms were. Like, because everyone's scared about it. Obviously, people are still terrified of it. So, um, you know, if I could just provide a, a bit of context to people, but it was starting to burn me out. It's like my phone kept going off and then like I'm sitting there talking about it for hours on end 
um, yeah, it was a bit of a, a circle of just talking about COVID, living with COVID. You know, it was, it was nonstop. Yeah, I can imagine. Our last one on this is that you didn't get any, you were not disciplined for that, tweeting that out. I assume you just got maybe, you just got a talking to from somebody to say, hey, we'd prefer you don't do this kind of thing. I wouldn't even say that it was like a talking to it. And it's not even that. It was just sort of like, oh, God, I wish that you, like, I wish, I don't even think it was like, I wish you didn't do that. It was like, I wish that there was a heads up that you were going to post that. But again, like I said, it wasn't this like meticulously thought out, like, I'm going to tell everyone and let's see what happens. Like, not at all. Um, But it it, it blows over in two seconds. You know, it's like, hey, we shouldn't do that. And then like the next day, did I hear anything else after that? No. Um, yeah, that's just sort of the way it goes sometimes there, too. It's like something seems like it's a big deal at first, and then, like, 24 hours later, people have moved on from it, and no one really cares. So it, it was not, like, a huge ordeal. It's like this, like, heat-seeking thing that happened. So I'll, I'll, yeah, I'm going to start, like, sort of where you are now and then eventually, um, you know, ask or get into the conversation, the inevitable questions about leaving WWE, which obviously everybody is interested in, um, given your your work there. But Dun-dun-dun. But what is it like right now for you to um, not? I don't want to say to be <laughs> to be unemployed because it sort of sounds like uh, uh, it's just just a sort of a weird thing unemployed. to say. Because I, I am unemployed. I know. I know you are. You're unemployed, that's, Renee. But you, you're well, also unemployed. Even really true. I mean, technically, I do still work for Fox Sports, so I, I'm not actually unemployed. But uh, I'm no longer employed by WWE. Yeah, but you're also getting. I know. I, I listened to a busted open interview with your husband, and you're also getting. People are calling your phone asking you if you are interested in doing X. So you're you're in a what, what I'm trying to get at is you're you're in a very weird place where you know for sure that there's going to be something next. You might not know exactly what's next yet. At the same time, this like nearly eight year journey of yours has ended. Um, so like, is this, is it? Do you feel like in a surreal or a, a weird or a different place? Because like for the first time in nearly eight years. Like, your day or your schedule is not planned. Right. It, it is. So it's really odd in the sense that, like, okay, so my weeks leading up to knowing that I was leaving WWE, knowing that I had my final days on the calendar, I knew that the clock was ticking down. Um, at the same time, I was doing all the final touches, so to speak, on my cookbook. That was like, those weeks were packed. It was four days of, you know, working from 10 till 6, 7, 8 p.m., shooting all the stuff for the cookbook. So that was a whirlwind of an experience I had never done before, and it was a blast, but it was like a shit ton of work. Um, and then going in, I, had, I was shooting a, a Best of Summer Slam for Fox, and then that next week doing Summer Slam, all while dealing with, you know, it being leaked out that I was leaving. So people are reaching out to me. People have all these questions. So it was just such a weird whirlwind that I was like, hey, once I get on the other side of SummerSlam, it's all done. Cookbook stuff is packed away. WWE stuff is packed away. I can just, like, unwind and figure out what I want to do or just take a second and do absolutely nothing. So that's always been my plan was, because, you know, my husband and I came, we're in Jacksonville right now. We've got a bunch of shows out here, so it just makes sense for us to both be out here. So I'm like, I'm just going to sit around. I'm going to read my book. I'm going to do whatever. And it's not like that. I kind of keep going back and forth where it's like, hey, I've had a few days. I've got to sleep in. I've not really had to do all that much. I mean, not that my days weren't really like that before. Let's be honest. We've all just been at home kind of doing nothing. Um, but, yeah, I, I start to feel that, like, need to reaction of, like, can hey, I have to do something right now? I need to, like, hurry up and, like, make a splash and 
figure out what the thing is that I want to do. And Renee Young turns back to Renee Paquette, and she's trying to figure out the next thing that she wants to do that I kind of want to like keep that momentum going all while making the right decisions for what I want my next career move to be. It's like when I've spent the past eight years working for WWE and getting to do all these amazing, incredible things, you know, when you're working for such a gigantic company, you're, you're doing what they want you to do, and it's great. But now I'm on the other side of that where it's like, okay, now I can really take time and like, really, what is the thing that I want to do? I want the next thing that I do to be the, the next thing that I'm doing for however many years. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just funny trying to, in my head, be like, okay, time to just relax, take a week, take a month, take however long you want to do nothing or start to, to come up with some plans. But, yeah, I keep kind of going back and forth on this, like, almost, I wouldn't even call it, like, an anxiety, but just this sort of, like, pressure that I'm putting on myself to hurry up and get on with it. But I think it's that schedule of being with WWE and on to the next, on to the next, on to the next. We're so busy that you hop off that ride and your head's still kind of spinning and you're trying to, to, you know, get your balance again. It sort of feels like that. I will just say this, Renee, as an aside. Uh, Chris Jericho and Matt Hardy. Two geniuses when it comes to promos. Speaking of Jackson. Oh, my God, of course. Um, All right, so you told Trina that you you have, like, something that is of interest to you heading forward would be to do what Joe Rogan does, which are these long-form conversations in audio form. Rogan, obviously, um, audio and video there. I think, you know, again. Yeah, I I want both, for sure. it, It is painful to me to agree with Trina on this. But I, I have to think, I, like this would be a great format for you. You have Matt. You have interests in so many different things. You, I think you're. I've I've told you this many times. I think one of your um, great strengths as uh, someone who's just been on television is I think you connect with people very quickly, which is hard to do. So it strikes me that like this kind of long form podcast format would be would be perfect for you. And I think you could get this given just your name recognition. Thank you. Thanks a lot. You know, I'm really hoping that that's kind of the direction that I can go with it. I mean, whether it's a thing that I just start doing on my own from my house and putting it out there, or if I end up working with another uh, network or company, you know, getting that show out there, that does seem like it's the thing that I really want to do. Like, I feel like one of my strengths is being able to interview people and to be able to shoot the shit with people and to make, uh, you know, uh, the environment comfortable for people right off the bat. And like you said, there's so many different areas of interest that I would love to get into and talk to people about. Um, yeah, it just, it seems really fun to me to have something to sink my teeth into. I feel like a lot of times uh, in, you know, different content people have been putting out for the past couple of years, it's very much like we want short form content. We want a three minute interview. We want a quick 30 second TikTok or whatever. We're like, I don't know. I'm at the point where I'm like, no, I want like longer form content. That's what I like to listen to when it's like putting on something in the background or like really giving it your full attention. I mean, John has Joe Rogan's show on all the time. It's always on in the house. Um, I, I really enjoy listening to Dak Shepard's podcast as well. I think he does a really great job of doing these uh, really interesting interviews with interesting people. Um, yeah, even that video component too. It's like having, I, you know, I want to lean on my strength as a television host. And, you know, all of the experience that I've been able to gain over the past decade or so working in television and, you know, moving it around these different platforms of putting out the podcast, putting out the audio, putting out a video, um, and then breaking some of those down and putting them on different platforms. But that just seems like it's the move. It just feels right. 
a friend of mine had kind of started talking to me about that. And I was like, it, it just was like the light bulb went off. And I was like, yeah, of course that's what I should be doing. Especially you look at the world right now. And if I'm going to sit around and be like, man, I wonder when a studio is going to pop in and these other great opportunities that could be there. Those just aren't here right now. It's just not the way the world's working right now. And if I want to be in control of my own content moving forward, this is a perfect opportunity to really step up and make that happen. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, th- I think you'll, you'll, you will eventually get to the place where I think that's going to be, um, that's going to be your thing. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so let's talk about WWE. So, he, all right, so here's my thought on this, you know. I, I really want to just sort of say, all right, it's time to shoot, brother. But um, so here's my uh, <laughs> here's so here's my thought on this. And again, I'm a Renee. Uh, like I was about to say, Renee Young. I'm a Renee Paquette Mark. So it's all right. I, I, it I'm, applies. I'm, yeah, I'm biased. <laughs> I'm biased on this. So people have to know. You know, I, I I've liked Renee's work for a long time. I, I, anybody who follows me on Twitter has read me knows this. So to me, Renee, if I have someone who the the WWE universe really really likes and connects with, if I have someone who is loyal to my company, who the performers and the talent like, who seems to be a great person just to be around on the road, I'm doing everything in my power to let that person. Um, feel like they're a major part of the company and that I want them to be not just with me for a couple of years, but for a 20 or 25 year run. For whatever reason, after you got the raw gig, and I, I do want to ask you if you feel like you were overproduced there, but like, it just feels like something changed and like uh, your, tra- your trajectory changed in that company. So like, am I, and again, I'm only looking in from the outside. I'm just, I'm a fan of pro wrestling. So it's just me reading stuff and my own intuition. But like, do I, ha- am I onto something there? Like did, after such a big run up, the announcement that you got this job, which was an incredible thing and very progressive for the WWE to do first woman full-time raw commentator, it then seemed like something switched. Am I, am I right? Or? Yeah. Okay. So what, yeah, what happened? I, I mean, I certainly felt that. And could I pinpoint what it was? Not necessarily, but I mean, yeah, I definitely felt that as well. Where it's like, I felt like I was kind of given the keys to the castle to like really do some stuff. Everyone was behind me. And then I think when my run on commentary was not exactly the run that everyone had thought that it was going to be, not what I hoped that it was going to be. It felt like just like faith was lost. I was pushed off to go do the Fox show. And I mean that in the best way that I was like so stoked to go do that show. Um, it seemed like, all right, put her, put her back in there. Let her go work for Fox. Let that be the platform. And then, you know, me being moved over to being a special contributor on SmackDown, which ultimately didn't mean anything. Um, yeah, I just, I, I really felt lost. I felt like I didn't know how to handle that or like what to do with it because everything, everything beyond doing raw commentary and going to host a show for Fox really felt like a step back. Um, it just felt like I had been spinning my wheels and as a TV host and that being my strength, there was just nowhere else for me to go. 
And, you know, I think even, too, it's like, you know, you, t- you want to look at putting me on commentary, and that was such a cool opportunity. And the fact I got to do that for over a year was nuts, especially when, like, you know, I, I kind of kept waiting for every day to be like, all right, Tuts, move on out of there. We're going to put somebody else in here. I just didn't really feel like it was what anybody wanted it to be, but um, kept me in there for, for the year or whatever. Um, that, yeah, I think my strength is being on camera more than just being the audio of calling a wrestling match. And that's something that I found really hard because it seemed like what fans liked for me and what Vince liked for me, et cetera, was my ease about things and being friendly with people and having a bubbly personality. You can't do that on commentary. Um, you're calling a Brock Lesnar match where I can't be like, I don't know. He seems like he's a pretty great guy. Like me calling a match about somebody getting the shit kicked out of them. It just doesn't translate the same way. And that's fine. You know, you look at the way Beth Phoenix does it. And she, obviously she has an incredible in-ring career to rely on to be able to do that. I didn't have that. So I just felt like I was lost I didn't know what my purpose was out there. Um, so it did feel like like everything just kind of got lost. My direction got lost. And then not having a, a great show for me to host on the other side of that, especially after Backstage got canceled, was just kind of like, okay, what are we doing here? And, you know, that, that ultimately led to my decision to uh, to start to move on and find something else. I know the, I know what I can bring to a product, I know what I can bring to a show, and not being able to have those opportunities anymore just felt like time to time to go seek that out and figure it out again. You one of the things um, in listening to uh, uh, Grilling Jr. the podcast that Jr. Ross does with uh, Jim Ross does with Conrad Thompson. I'm not sure if you ever heard that podcast. A very popular one. Yeah, he he, he talks a lot uh, because they sort of reminisce or reflect on. Um, old school uh, WWE or old school WCW stuff. And one of the things that Jim Ross said was Vince was always in his ear um, as the play-by-play person. He, he, he said that he used to leave Jerry Lawler alone to sort of be spontaneous, but, but he was always being produced in his ear. How often were you hearing producers in your ear when you were on the, the commentator desk? It was so kind of a mixture in the sense that obviously all of us are getting stuff in our ear from producers to Vince to whatever. I mean, there's always a ton of shit coming through our our headsets. Um, But, you know, in terms of, like, reacting to things naturally versus having, like, a line fed to you, which, like, honestly, one of my biggest issues when Vince would feed me a line for something is that I couldn't hear him or, like, understand him. Uh, so that, I would be like, wait, what? In trying to, like, get him to repeat it on, like, the little spy cam on the commentary desk. So it just always felt like a bit of, like, lack of communication or, like, um, you know, even when I wanted more direction to be produced in different ways, I don't feel like I was really getting that. Um, that's why I mean, it, you know, it's kind of both sides that obviously when you're out there, they're, they're, you're going to get production notes and Vince is going to throw stuff your way. But there was also times that I just sort of felt like I was left out to dry, um, that it was just kind of like sink or swim. And I was floundering. I was really floundering. And, you know, being the, the A person in a broadcast for the, the huge majority of my career to all of a sudden being the third voice on a commentary table when Michael Cole and Corey Graves, I mean, as we know, they've been on SmackDown for however long in a two-man booth. They don't need a third voice in there. Those two are covering everything wall-to-wall that by the time there'd even be an opening or, like, as I'm trying to figure out my confidence in that spot, there's kind of nothing to say anymore. 
um, so, you know, I ended up, yeah, just kind of struggling with it in that sense of trying to find the right thing to say. And I was so hard on myself about all that stuff of just feeling like I didn't belong or that people didn't actually really want me in that spot. So that, that just made it really hard on me. One of the other things that you had to deal with that essentially maybe no other commentator had to deal with is your husband is part of active storylines. So he's, he's Dean Ambrose in the WWE. You're calling matches. And what was always weird to me as somebody uh, watching this stuff, and I felt for you, is there would be some weeks where it seemed like your direction was to call this straight as if you are – um, how do I say this? Like, like you are independent of what Dean Ambrose is doing in the ring. Then like the next week you're being asked as, as the real life wife of John Good, what you think about Dean Ambrose's ex to me, it's just like that puts you in an, like in an impossible spot. You're flipping from kayfabe to like real and back again. Yeah. And, and so I wondered <laughs> I wondered. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, if my head was spinning as a viewer, your head had to be spinning as the person doing this. Oh my god! Well, it's like okay, so you even look at it from the point of view that the night that my husband re-debuted as a heel, he debuted as a heel, and I'm like fucking squeaky clean babyface commentator that people know that I'm married to him, that I'm like, what can I say? How do I help get his character over in this spot as an inexperienced commentator in that position to begin with? And yeah, it's like some days it would be like, we're not going to talk about it. We're not going to address it. Just call the matches as they are. And we would go into the show. But then all of a sudden Graves is being fed lines to ask me about what goes on at our dinner table and what do we talk about when we're at home. Right. So I'm super unprepared for how to navigate this and also knowing how important this heel run was going to be to my husband, how much time and effort he really put into wanting to make that a success. And I'm like, oh, my God, now I'm going to be the one that's going to, like, trash it and make it, like, you know, not this great thing that it could have been. So it was just like, oh my God, so much pressure to try to get all that stuff right. It was, it was a lot. Yeah, I, 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 when you were going through that, I totally felt, uh, I felt for you. You, um, <laughs> I, I know that. Yeah, uh, it was a lot. I'm like, who's got the wine? I need a drink after this. I started trying to pitch. I'm like, can I start having a glass of wine in the third hour of the show? Can I get a sponsorship or something? Ooh, help actually- us, help this sister up. Well, actually, kind of a smart. <laughs> right. Kind of they're WWE. Is always like Kathy for, Lee and Hoda gig. Yeah, they're always looking for revenue. <laughs> they're always looking for revenue. That's actually a smart idea. Uh, yeah. Um. So you right. uh you had you Michael Cole is um he's a longtime friend but like he's he was also your boss um you know he's sort of the head of broadcasting there you when you when you decided that you were going to leave you um you know you mentioned this on Jimmy's podcast that you 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 told Michael Cole. Uh, is there a hierarchy that Michael Cole tells Stephanie, Hunter, and Vince, or because you've been in the company for a long time, do you have a conversation with them? And then the other part of that is, do they at all try to talk you into um, changing your mind and staying? So, I, I mean, I've been talking to Cole about everything and keeping him on the loop of what I was feeling, what I wanted to do, and all that. Um, and then he was taking those conversations and, you know, talking to Hunter, talking to Vince, talking to Kevin Dunn and letting them know. Um, and yeah, I just, I, I also keep in mind that I wasn't under a talent contract at that point. I was an employee, so I only had to give two weeks notice. So it was really a different situation. Um, 
uh, yeah, it was odd to just be like, hey, here's my two weeks notice for this job I've been doing for forever. It felt very bizarre. Um, but I didn't talk to, um, I, I had texted with Hunter. I had texted with Steph. Um, and then I, I went and said bye to Vince and Kevin Dunn on my last day. Um, but other than that, there, I had no conversations with them up until my last day because I think everyone just knew where we were at. And they understood, too. It's like they understood that with my skill set, they just don't really have the thing for me to do right now without there being these other shows. I mean, other than talking smacks coming back, and, you know, that was something that had been brought up to me. But ultimately, I was like, I don't want to stick around to just do this one thing that I've already done. It just it doesn't make sense again. Um, so yeah, I think they understood that and they respected where I was coming from. And I think they respect the sense that I still want to keep working and want to do some stuff. And I had just been spinning my wheels. You you know, you, you're married to someone who's in the business. And obviously, wrestling has to be a big part of your, uh, you know, the life that you and John have he's a, he's a major performer in AEW. He's loved the business for you know going back to whatever 1990s, and so um, so you can't yeah. The, so so like the business like you're the how do I sort of say this like wrestling is going to be part of your life whether you are in it or not because you're sort of still literally married. Oh yeah. To the business, yeah. but <laughs> do, so but I I guess what I'm trying to get at is. Um, do you could you see yourself returning in some form to wrestling, or do you want to try something totally different, knowing that the potential for you to come back to wrestling probably could always exist, just given your previous experience? So the way that I look at that is like I have built up such a great, um, first of all, great resume, but like a great fan base, and this like all this knowledge about professional wrestling that's like for me to just fully abandon that and try to just completely go do something new seems a little foolish, you know, as much as it seems like I'm kind of starting from, from scratch again right now, I never want to seem like I'm just like not involved in wrestling or that I don't care about wrestling. Like even the other night I was tweeting during payback and people were like, Oh my God, you're still tweeting about this. It's like, yeah, man, it's yeah. Like you said, wrestling's in our house. It's going to be around all the time. That, you know, if I go and do this, whatever podcast, whatever show I end up doing, I want to still be able to go on there and talk about wrestling. Uh, when You know, when I had actually thought about leaving WWE several years ago, and uh, I was not granted my release at the time because I was under a talent contract, so they wouldn't let me out of that contract. Um, and it, it turned out to be a good thing. I got to do a ton of stuff beyond that, that um, I wouldn't have the career that I have today had I not been there for the past three years. Um, but as, as I sort of accepted that, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be here for longer. And there are these other opportunities and these other things that I want to get to do here. I've also accumulated this, like, yeah, this knowledge of wrestling that I'm not going to be able to use anywhere else. So to just throw that away seems like a waste of the past almost decade, you know? I agree. So, all right. So here is, th- this, this is the inevitable question, Renee, and you're going to get this literally every time you talk to anybody, uh, <laughs> AEW confirmed. Right. So you have you you clearly (laughs) have you have a non compete, which means that you can't talk to um, another um, wrestling company for. uh, Are you allowed to say how long it is, or are you not allowed legally to say how long? I don't know. Oh God, I don't even know. We talking under? Yeah, are people allowed to like under a? I don't know. Under a year. Um, it's in and around 
a neighborhood of that area. Am okay. I legally bound to anything by saying that? No, just don't say anything else, just in case. I'll, uh, I'll, my sister's a lawyer. <laughs> my sister's a lawyer. She'll call you later. We'll make okay, sure. Okay, great. We'll yeah, sure I've never even thought that like legally you can't say that. I don't know. I've never yeah. thought about that. I yeah, don't know. I'm, I'm that, just a. That's why there's I'm a lot just of a girl. F- likes to talk about wrestling. I, I don't know. know. Not getting caught of- in no legal jargon. We're just two Canadians talking about stuff. Um, so yeah. <laughs> Or, wait, I'm an American. Sorry, I always forget that. Uh, so yeah, uh, yeah, it's all right. We've accepted you. Thank you. All right. So, um, so if inevitably, whenever the non-compete is done, um, I think AEW would be insane not to at least have a conversation with you. How would you feel though? And this is the real thing. Your husband is is going to, regardless of what storyline is, he's going to be a major part of AEW um, when that conversation theoretically could happen. Um, are, would you be comfortable working in the, the same company with him? You'd certainly get to see each other, but you know, you, they, uh, if, it seems to me they'd have to figure out not running into the same issue that happened at WWE when, you know, you don't exactly know storyline, what you're supposed to say about your real life husband. Right. Um, you know, I think if that was something that were to ever come up down the line, I don't think them, if, if they, if, yeah, if that ever was something to happen, I don't think putting me on commentary is necessarily even the right move regardless. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I don't, that's not some, that's like not something I even, I, even when I started doing commentaries, like I would just want to, you know, let people know too, that like I was super stoked to have that opportunity, but there was never a point in my like life or career that I was like, man, I want to be a commentator. Like it just seemed like the next thing to do because there wasn't a lot of other opportunities for me to do within WWE that felt big enough and important enough. So I was like, hell yeah, let's try it. But I had not spent time, uh, you know, studying commentary or getting in a booth and trying to figure it out before being launched onto Monday Night Raw. So my, my dreams are not dashed by not getting back on commentary. Well, you um, mentioned... You so mentioned I, don't, I don't think that... I'm sorry, was you mentioned a trainer though, and I think this is like awesome, like a role where you're sort of inter- like uh, like almost a UFC thing, where you'd be interviewing people heading to the ring, like something like real, yes. like live, right before they walk in the ring, which which kind of yeah. which is like interesting, yeah. little bit of danger in there. Like I think that's that would be awesome. Yeah, yeah, that was something that I tried to pitch to uh, to the head writers of SmackDown. When they were trying to find what does this special contributor look like, I was like, man, use me like how UFC uses Megan O'Leary. That's cool as shit. And she feels like a big, important part of the broadcast. Um, She's so good at that job, too. She's great. But that's something that I think would be a really cool rule for any wrestling promotion to have if they want to use male or female, whatever, but to like have that sort of like roaming the roving reporter getting getting the scoops, getting the stories, and not just having it be like, I'm waiting outside Paul Heyman's dressing room and then not actually getting a question out or not really being able to do anything to actually be like a big role in the broadcast is, uh, that would be badass. Now someone's probably going to do it. Now I'm going to go, damn it, I wanted to do that. I know. It actually really is a good idea. Someone should swipe that. Um, yeah. You know, although. Yeah, they, I'm sure they will. It's all right. I know. Here's one good thing about AEW, Renee. No writer's room. There you go. Um, so, <laughs> True. Um, all right. You, I know you were tight with Corey Graves. Um, you were tight with Natty. Are those two? I'm sure you're going to miss uh, significantly, given how much time you spent on the road. Um, anybody? Any else? Anyone else who you would consider in sort of the back then the Renee Young inner circle that you're really sort of going to just miss seeing every week? 
Yeah, you know, uh, there's a bunch of people. I've I've been really close with a lot of people in WWE. Um, I mean, if we're talking talent-wise, I mean, there's a ton of people crew-wise. You know, Jackie, the head makeup artist, is one of my closest friends. So not being able to see her is going to be an absolute bummer. Um, Yes, not having wine with Natty after shows. uh, I, I don't get to see Beth Phoenix all that much as it is, given our schedules. But, you know, I love any time I got to spend with Beth. Um, Tom Phillips has always been such a great dude to spend time with. Um, Michael Cole, of course. Um, gosh. Oh, Booker T. Booker's my dude. Like, I love getting to hang out with Booker. I don't want to, like, throw him down the river and say he maybe shed a tear after SummerSlam. But just, you know. <laughs> I, I've always really, truly loved working with him. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, you look at the women in the locker room, and it's just such a tight, cool-knit group of, of women that have all really, like, supported each other. And I really have always felt that, like, kinship with a, with a lot of the talent there in WWE. I mean, the missing Big E, we have this, like, ridiculous um, greeting that we do when we see each other that can't even be described. But I'm going to miss getting to see him. Uh, Sammy Zane's a good friend of mine. Uh, Dolph Ziggler has literally been my first friend in WWE before I even worked in WWE. So he's someone that will be missed too. Nice. Don't uh, tell him I said that. I won't. Don't yeah. tell him I said that. He, so this is something I, I, I should have, I've always wanted that. I should have asked other wrestlers when I've, when I've talked to him. So I'm going to end up asking you this. Cause I just, I find this like so fascinating. The, you know, you, you grow up if you watch wrestling and you're sort of always told these stories that like uh, champions will travel with the belt in airports. And so like y- you are married, obviously, right now to a uh, champion, but you're obviously married to a very prominent pro wrestler. Like do, does does John have to live number the, one on PWI, baby? I know he is. Does he have to live the gimmick? <laughs> does, does he have to live the gimmick when he leaves the house? Meaning, because there's a potential for fans, like, or can he just be John Good? And if he sees somebody in an airport, says hi, whatever. Like that's something like always is fascinating to me, especially like if you're a heel. Like, like do these guys have right. to? Like, what do you do if you just see? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If you're like. Uh, I don't know, Bray Wyatt, and you see somebody in an airport, like, can you just be a normal dude, or do you have to be, you know, crazy Bray Wyatt? Well, everyone's different. Everyone's different because everyone looks at that, like, kayfabe world differently of how they're going to behave. And, you know, at the airport, it's almost like it's part of the gag to, like, stay in character, and people are there at 5, 6 in the morning, so maybe it's a little easier to be grumpy towards people or whatever. But it's always cracked me up with John, because obviously he gets recognized everywhere he goes. But uh, he's he's not the most social guy in those settings. Like, he really... When we first started dating, I was like, oh, my God, like, what's your deal? Like, just say hi to these people. But he just gets, like, socially a little bit funny in those situations. So it's always been like, yeah, I, I'm like the icebreaker in it. Like the other day, <laughs> we're walking, we're just like going for like a daily walk as like senior citizens during our quarantine time. And uh, <laughs> I'm passing this sewer grate, and there was like a frog making a sound, but I thought it was a duck that was stuck in the sewer grate. So I go back to look at it, I'm like peering down this grate. He is walking like, you know, in very little clothes. It's hot out, we're sweating. And some guy drives by in a truck. He's like, oh, my God, John Moxie, Renee Young. And like, I'm like, 
just peering down a sewer like a psychopath. And we're like, oh, hey, how's it going? Like, like, we were expecting anyone to see us, obviously, but we're like, that guy probably thinks we're such, like, maniacs. Just like, I don't know, digging through the sewers in Jacksonville. (laughs) It was just a anyways. I was fine. There was not a duck. But I've seen I've seen too many of those like dodo videos of like an animal stuck in a sewer grate. And I'm like I can't just walk by and not know that something's not stuck in there. But the wildlife in Florida is bizarre. Well, I love the fact that I mean in this situation though you're almost like a face manager for John. You know you can be the person who's sort of like 100%. you know what I mean? Yeah, which is great. Like, no, it's like kind he... of like so. Yes, 100. percent It's great for him. But it's like kind of bullshit for me that oh, I'm yeah. like, wait, oh, wait, all of a sudden I'm like the face of uh, of the, the relationship in the sense that like I'm the more approachable one. I'm the one that's always like shooting the shit with everybody and being like social butterfly. And he's the complete opposite of that. So everyone's always like, wait, what's your guy's deal? But he's, you know, obviously he's not like that when we're home. He just, I don't know, he's just like that out in public. He likes to shut it down. He wants to keep it very close and a few people around that are friends and whatever, but I'll walk around to like a bunch of different social settings and talk to people. But it's even like that just in like our real life too. It's like our, like our parents will call me. His dad will call me. His, you know, his mom will call me. My mom, obviously my mom's calling me, but like, cause they know that he's not going to answer. He just doesn't like really pick up the phone. So I'm the liaison <laughs> for, for all of his shit. It's ridiculous. I should be taking like a, I don't know, I should charge him a percentage or charge him some kind of a fee. I can't believe I've not worked that out already with him. But yeah, I've been doing all the heavy lifting with the, all of our social circles. I know. I really, that I would bastard. Love, I, how great would it be though if John was like incredibly friendly and like over the top and you cut a promo <laughs> on someone? Oh my God, how great would that be? <laughs> well, you know what's funny is like, honestly, I, I like, I, he's so like, you can be such a chill dude. He does not have a bad bone in his body. Uh, I feel like if he's listening to this, he's going to yell at me for blowing his spot up. But he is just like the nicest, best dude where like I can be a little more scrappy. I'm the one to be like, excuse me? But, like I, I think I would get in somebody's face before he would. So, yeah, it, I, maybe that could happen at some point. Who knows? Hold me back. Well, the one that's, you know, this is, so i just got a couple more here. We'll finish up. You know, one the one amazing thing, though, is, and this is, I, I, I read this uh um, something that you said uh, when you initially left WWE is that like no matter what, I have to always have incredibly warm feelings about WWE because it gave me my husband and the and the crazy fact that like somebody from Toronto, Canada ends up. Where's John from? Cincinnati. He's somewhere from Ohio, right? Somewhere around there. Yeah, Cincinnati. Right. Yeah. Right. So just I mean yep, the od- you guys the odds of you meeting without this crazy world th- just would not have happened. And so the fact that you two sort of end up together is great. Yeah, it really feels like, you know, him and I would always talk about this, too, where, I mean, aside from the incredible careers that we've both been able to have within WWE, it's like, I always really feel like, like, I, I, I've i ended up in this wrestling world, and that wasn't necessarily always my goal to be like, oh, that's what I'm going to go get into. It just sort of turned into that, um, and for the best reasons and in the best way, in a way that I could not have ever expected and yeah, you look at like sort of like the fate universe aligning kind of thing of like, man, for me to be offered a job back in Toronto, uh, back in 2000, whatever, nine, 10, uh, whatever it was. Anyways, 
for me to be doing a job there and be like, hey, we want you to host this wrestling show. And I'm like, okay, let's roll up our sleeves and like really delve back into WWE. I never would have like sought that out. Um, and to imagine where he was at that point in time of grinding it out, working all these other promotions and trying to, to land his next big thing to think of us kind of around the same time getting these contracts to go work for WWE. And then, you know what, two years later, we're just, we're a pair that's stuck together for life. It's crazy. The, um, so here's a, the, I have two last ones for, I want to, um, I do want to ask you this though, before we get out of here, both of us are big fans of Paul Heyman and his, uh, and his genius. How, again, if Heyman is now working with Roman Reigns, and it seems clear that Roman's going to, uh, Roman's going to flip, uh, to uh, to a heel, which is awesome. He'll be great at that. Paul Heyman is a genius, Renee, for me- for many reasons. But maybe his greatest talent is to align himself with major talents. How does that dude just do? Whether it's Brock and now it's Roman, he has just put himself once again front and center in this universe. He is so great at that. But it's you know it's sort of like a mutual rub in the way of like for someone to be a Paul Heyman guy, and you look at that long list of the successful partnerships that he's had of pushing guys to the absolute top. I mean, obviously Roman Reigns is already at the top, but now we're looking at a different version of what his career is going to be of, of uh, what we're going to get from this heel Roman Reigns. Everyone's like clamoring for this right now. So it's one of the, yeah, it's, it's one of those situations that just is like beneficial for both people. You look at uh, Paul Heyman as well, and now we know that Brock Lesnar, I guess his contract has expired with, with WWE. We're not sure what's going to go on there. And then Paul not being on the, the writing team for Raw anymore and being the incredible talent that he is. It's like, hell yeah. Now we're, you know, you, you put someone back in the exact spot that they're supposed to be in and you watch them succeed and they flourish. And uh, it's, it's really fun to watch someone kind of step back into the thing of like, yes, that's what we want from you. We want to see Paul Heyman come back and just be dastardly Paul Heyman. I know. I do love the guy, though. Oh, it'd be great to just hang out with him. <laughs> He's just, just to try to figure yeah. out what's bullshit and what's real, which would be awesome. Um, oh, hell yeah. I like this game. Yeah. So what, what do you, I know you're still doing stuff with Fox. What exactly will you still be doing with Fox? Do you know? Or FS1, I should say. I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. The only other thing so since um, backstage got canned, um, we did a 1992 SummerSlam watch-along that was uh, me, Booker, Punk, and, uh, and Bret Hart. So, there, you know, maybe there's stuff like that to do in the meantime. I don't know if there will ever be a situation where you end up getting back in the studio, if we're going to have a presence doing stuff at some of the major four um, pay-per-views or something. I'm not sure. I don't know what that's going to look like. So I'm kind of excited to see um, where things are going to go. I know that obviously everything with Fox right now is so, like, deep and with football and all these other things going on that, uh, yeah, I think it'll be really cool to, to see where we stand and what kind of content we can create there. The cook, the, the, I know you, um, you, you know, cooking relaxes you and it's, um, it's something that's a big part of you. You have the cookbook coming out. Um, you shot obviously the photos, I think you said for the, the cookbook, like, will there be, will there be a tour this book? Like, will you be heading to the food network and some of these other, Entities like I uh, can you give people who are listening just a sense of like um, like one when is the book scheduled to come out to what would be the plans once the book comes out for you? So the book comes out in the spring. The actual date 
has not been determined yet. Um, you know, I think so. We actually just got the cover shots finalized and retouched. Um, then we'll come up with the artwork and whatnot for for um, the yeah for for the title and whatnot being on there. So I think maybe once that stuff is done, maybe get a pre-sale thing going. I, I, honestly, this is such a foreign experience to me that I'm not sure how it all goes. Um, but I think getting that pre-sale out there would be really cool. Get ready for it to come out in the spring, and hopefully, fingers crossed, that by then, yeah, I can go do some press tours, go do some signings. Um, just go cook some stuff on some different networks. I'm really hoping that that's something that I'll be able to do when that time comes around. So fingers crossed. Otherwise, I guess I'll be going on my Instagram live and giving my own tutorial. I want to be myself. All right. So now here's my final thing. You want you want my if I was your agent, two pe- my my two pieces of advice for Talk you. Talk to me. Okay. All right. By the way, you're listening, Coonan. Listen yeah. up, Coonan. Yeah, Coonan. Yeah. Oh, CAA, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There you go. All right. Well, good. No, I, I love. There's not. There's nothing I enjoy more than giving a. You know, figuring out what agents are doing good for you, for clients or not. All right. So, and again, this this may be sh- totally shitty advice, but but this is what I would say. One, I think it'd be incredibly valuable for you if you can do some like one-offs where you're um, doing some kind of interview slash hosting on TV, whether that's in Canada or whether that's in the states, where you just sort of do like a one-off where you're. You're part of a show. It doesn't necessarily have to be like, quote unquote, the view, but but that kind of thing where, you know, you sort of keep your chops, uh, you know, your live television chops sharp just to do those one off. So if I'm your agent, I would try to find places in the next, assuming that you can do this, it's not important part of the non-compete stuff where you can get your, uh, you know, sort of just so you have a little bit of a presence and you get that. But that's not really my good advice. This is what I would do. Because I think you would be awesome in this sort of Rogan-like universe, I think before you even cut a deal with, like, whoever you'll end up cutting a deal with, like a Spotify type or something else like that, I would love to see you do, like, a couple of one-offs where you just, like, pick, you know, three or four or five people you've always wanted to interview, set up those interviews, create your own sort of, like, one-off special and unique podcast where you talk to that person for two hours, release it on whatever your own channel is, you own the content, and that will give people a taste of what you can do in the space before you end up doing perhaps this as a full-time gig. What do you think of that? Hell yeah. I think that's brilliant. I think that sounds awesome. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, even just keeping, like you said, like doing a couple one-offs, do some regular TV gigs to, to keep that presence and keep my name out there and blah, blah, blah. But... Yeah, I mean, that sounds cool as all hell. That's a great idea. Maybe I should do that. Should I be doing that right now? That's really You should be doing that because because then it still gives you the flexibility and the freedom to do whatever you want in your your daily life, but you're still sort of staying and keeping uh, keeping current. But if it's David Coonan, right? Is that his first name? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, there's way too too many agents in my head. And I'm sure right now he's uh, (laughs) having it. I'm sure he's having an incredible lunch in Malibu on your dime, on your hard work, Renee. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, what the hell? Yeah, get get on the call and call him. But like, um, yeah, to me, like, I I I hope uh, who your reps and everything else, like, they really look into this because I I think like you are tailor made for this universe. And the other thing I think, as you mentioned earlier, there are not, there's almost no women in this space who are doing that. So I feel like yeah. there's um, yeah. there's such a massive opportunity to like. Uh, to be part of that world. And, you know, Rogan's a once-in-a-lifetime, one-in-a-million kind of podcast. Of but, like, 
there's so much space though to be somewhere in between, you know, <laughs> zero listens and 25 million listens. So I think if you yeah, right. if you end right. up there, I think I think you're gonna kick ass, and uh and I will absolutely do my yeah, part yeah, to I help. Like... I was gonna say to do my part well, to help you promote. You. I, I... I really appreciate that. I feel like that is the, I think that's the great space is getting in there and ultimately creating the content that I'm currently seeking out and having trouble finding. Um, so I think that that's, that's kind of the sweet spot that I want to get in. All right, Renee, I went longer than Trina did. So that was my goal. So I appreciate uh, <laughs> that. You gave me, you gave me some very good behind the scenes. You gave me, this is, I mean, in, in the YouTube universe, this would be considered a shoot, shoot interview with Renee Paquette. So it's my first shoot interview. I'm incredibly happy with that. Um, and so These in all seriousness. so weird for me because I feel like I would just keep saying like, I have so much to say and so many different things to talk about that as soon as I start on one topic, I end up going long winded. I don't even know if I answered your question. So. No, you did. I mean, well, we're all in this COVID universe, Renee. None of us have talked to any human beings in the last six months. So everybody's, <laughs> we're all excited. We're just excited to talk to human beings. Thirty-minute answer. Buckle up. <laughs> I know. I will tell you that your beloved Toronto is, generally speaking, fairly sane. Weather's been beautiful here the last couple of days. People are, generally speaking, listening and taking care of others. So it's, uh, you know, you're always welcome back here. Um, uh, but in all oh, seriousness, yeah. thank you, Renee Paquette is. Uh, is really one of my favorite people in the in the broadcasting business. Um, she, you know, I've only maybe met her. I think I've only met you once in person. But again, there's just very yeah. When I was there, there last summer. Yeah, that's right. They're just people who basically, for whatever reason, when you sort of see them, they they have a, a genuine ability to connect with all different types of people. And Renee has that, and that's I, I think you're just born with that. Honestly, I don't think you could sort of fake that. That's just my impression. So Renee, I honestly no bullshit here. I wish Thank you nothing you. but the best of success. Um, and I'm rooting for you, and I have no doubt whatever your next uh, journey is, it's going to be awesome. Um, send my best to your husband. I wish him nothing but uh, health uh, because that is what uh, all those guys uh, should get given, just how hard they work for, uh, for all of us. And, uh, and thanks so much for joining me on the Sports Media Podcast, and, and I'm sure I will talk to you soon. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, I really appreciate all of your uh, insightful questions you put together. I know, like we said, it's kind of hard to – do the follow-up interview, but I feel like we went into some different uh, areas, and it was a lot of fun, so I appreciate all of it. And that was great advice. I'm going to call my agent right now and let him know. All right, as I said at the top, Stephanie Reddy is a Turner Sports and NBA TV reporter. She is now back from working inside the NBA bubble, so that makes her a really interesting person to talk to as the playoffs continue. And I'm happy to be joined by Stephanie Reddy on the Sports Media Podcast. Uh, for Stephanie, first, uh, I mean, welcome back to freedom. How, how, is it, how is it back in the real world, outside of the bubble? It's interesting. Um, you know, you, you never know what that transition is going to be like, because while you're inside, you take for granted that everyone is COVID-free, you know? And even though we're all wearing masks and we're being very careful with our personal hygiene and checking our own symptoms every single day, you know that everyone that you're around has tested negative for consecutive days. You know, I was in there for 39 days. So it is a bit of a culture shock when you get back out into the real world and you're in an airport and, and now you have to look at everybody, you know, a little skeptically. You're, you're like, okay, let me back away. Let me get myself in a corner here so I can see my surroundings. So it is a bit different. You mentioned that uh, you were in the bubble for that long. 
And um, I mean, it's obviously just been an incredibly interesting, an interesting experience to watch for those of us who are outside of the bubble. I can only imagine what it was like being inside of the bubble. So let's sort of start with your journey from the beginning. Um, how did you find out that you were going to go to Orlando, and were you given the choice of, um, uh, you know, if for whatever reason, health-wise, family-wise, you didn't want to go? Uh, did you have to make that choice? Did you have to discuss it with your family? I'd l- let's start from the beginning and, and take me back to when you initially headed down. Yeah, those are great questions, um, and and yes to all of those. So we we were told with Turner Sports we had a um, a conference call with all of the reporters that could potentially go. And this was sort of when the bubble was established that it was going to happen, but we didn't know a whole lot of details in terms of the numbers of media members that would be inside, how many each network would be allowed to have inside. You know, so we're still trying to figure all of those things out. But uh, to Turner Sports credit, and they've always been so good at this, um, they got ahead of it. You know, we had a conference call. They discussed with us what they knew. And at that point, it really just wasn't much. And they were very honest in stating that. Um, and they kind of put it out there. And they said, you know, we don't need you to tell us on this call because we're all here listening together. But if you have any questions or if there's any trepidation, please reach out to us. We can have an offline one-on-one conversation, um, you know, where you can express your concerns, ask questions. Hopefully they could answer them. And and we did that. You know, I immediately, when I got off that call, sent an email requesting a one-on-one meeting um, just so that I could ask questions. You know, I've got two children at home. Um, my husband and I have been very diligent from the very beginning of all this, even before my kids were out of school for quarantine, about our exposure um, with people. You know, we've always, we basically have been staying home this entire time. We've been fortunate enough to be able to do that. Um, but I didn't want to kind of burst our own personal mini bubble by then exposing myself and bringing it back to my family. So we had lots of questions and they were great in answering them. And yes, I did have a choice. You know, if, if my family and I came to the decision where we were not comfortable with it, then Turner Sports was not going to make me go. Um, and, and I think, you know, again, that was a luxury that I had. But, and, and I told this to my bosses kind of jokingly, but, but half serious too, that you know, my reporter spidey senses were tingling just at the the prospect of being able to go there. You know, just the science intrigued me. The logistics intrigued me. I wanted to know how this was actually going to all be implemented and executed. I was dying to see it. I wanted to see firsthand. So to me, it was a privilege and an honor to be able to be even just a small part of it. But yes, there were concerns with our family. And, and my husband and I spent a legit 48 hours researching and discussing all of the possibilities for travel. I consider taking a train from um, Maryland to Florida because I I was concerned about airport exposure. Um, You know, but with the research, we found out that the air filtration systems were not necessarily the greatest. So even though I may have a sleeper car to myself, who knows who was sleeping next to me and what I would be exposed to for that long period of time, as opposed to on an airplane where the air filtration was excellent, um, I compared airlines. I made phone calls and spoke to people with the airlines because I wanted to make sure that they were really, truly keeping that capacity limit that they said they would when they were selling these tickets and, and how I would be seated. Um, it, a lot went into it. Um, thank you for asking because people just think you just morph yourself and you're there in the bubble. But, you know, we have families, too. So um, but I was thrilled to be there in the end. 
you um you know you're obviously part of a rights holder so there's going to be a certain amount of access for that but you're also dealing with you know these players um playing in the middle of the pandemic and the nba going um i mean really really uh having detailed sort of protocol regarding uh who could be in contact with everybody can you give my listeners a sense of just what kind of access did you have uh, not necessarily during games, because I think we saw that, but outside of games. It was, um, it was challenging. It was, it was a lot more limited, as you might suspect, than a normal um, pre-COVID NBA game. Um, just for an example, the players and you know, the teams that were there obviously had to have practice sessions. And so in the very beginning, when there were 22 teams there inside the bubble, Each team had a practice time and location that they set on the schedule. And the media members would have to essentially apply to go to a practice. So they would give us the schedule 48 hours in advance. We would decide which ones we were going to go to. And keep in mind, they're in all different facilities. So it's not just like there's one giant, you know, convention center and then all of the practices are in that same building. You have to shuttle between all of these venues. And there were... There was one facility that did have three practice courts. So if you got lucky enough to have, you know, back-to-back practices in that same building, then that was a great day for you. But oftentimes you'd have to shuttle from one practice to another. And then their media availability, some teams, most teams did it after, but there were a few that did their media availability before. So you have to factor all those in. And the shuttle only runs like every 30 minutes. It's not like you could just get in your car and go. So you have to factor that also into your scheduling. And there's only one of you, you know, you can't split yourself in half and be at two places at the same time. Um, So that alone, the logistics, that was very challenging. Um, And then, as I mentioned, when you put your request in, it has to be approved. And the reason behind that was because obviously with COVID, even though we're all being tested daily, you still want to be very conscientious of the number of people gathering in one place. So they had caps on the the number of people that could attend each practice session, even each game. Um, so you had to really have everything in order well in advance and um, hope that you got approved to go to the practice that you really needed. Now, luckily for me, even though, as you mentioned, you were a rights holder, I did not have deadlines to to write something that was due every day. And I was so grateful for that because there were times when teams would practice, they would cancel their practices. Um, and of course, that's their right. You know that. I mean, they do that from time to time based on whatever's happening with that individual team. But if you've already scheduled your entire day, 48 hours in advance to include that practice, it can throw you for a loop. So um, there was a lot of, of that going on before you could even try to gain direct access to a player or a coach who was going to be there. Um, now, in terms of the media availability, they were great with, you know, making coaches available and certain players in that designated media available time that was conducted um, virtually. And in the very beginning, they were saying, even if you were going to be there physically in person, you still had to log in virtually and ask your questions through that platform. Thankfully, they kind of, you know, lessened that burden a little bit for us because that would have just been one more thing that you had to have your computer out and be logged in and hope you had the Wi-Fi signal that you needed. So they, w- they would allow us to ask questions in person, and I'm sure you've, you noticed that as the time went on. Um, but again, if the player that you wanted or needed to speak with to work on a story was not being made available during that session, 
then that's when it gets a little dicey and you have to hope that, um, you know, that they're feeling like speaking, um, that the, the, the PR person is going to help you facilitate it, which I will say they were all excellent. Everyone who I dealt with was really good in that regard. And, and most people understood that we were all working in very different circumstances, that we just had a job to do, and they were very accommodating and trying to help us get those jobs done. Um, but yes, it, you can't just, you know, walk up to players like you used to. I mean, you know, you could, but it was just, you had to be very careful. You didn't want to set off any alarms. And I think as time went on, those restrictions kind of got lessened just because people got more and more comfortable. But that first week or two when we were doing the seeding games before the playoffs, there was a lot up in the air about what you could do, what you couldn't do, um, where you could even stand. Um, it, it was very, very interesting. The, um, the day the Milwaukee Bucks decided not to play uh, or to uh, do essentially forfeit their game, uh, must have been one of the most memorable days for you in the bubble, perhaps one of the most memorable days in your broadcasting career. Um, now that you have a little bit of, uh, of uh, runway from that, can you, um, can you just reflect on what that day was like for you? That was, it was such an interesting day. Um, I joked you know, that night and, and the following days when I was doing all of my live shots from the campus that I, I was so... I love my job, obviously. Basketball has been like one of my passions from as early as I can remember as a kid. Um, And so this is literally my dream job. I get to talk about the NBA all the time. Um, But I never really signed up for breaking news per se, you know. And so it was it was a bit overwhelming in the in the beginning because I was there to report on a game and what might happen during that game, you know, live, of course. But within the framework of an, of an NBA game taking place, when the Bucks decided not to play, you know, we were all on a red alert because I had the second game. I had the Houston-Oklahoma City game, and that was scheduled to tip at 6.30. So I was in the building hours ahead of time. And, and so luckily I was there so early because I got to witness and experience firsthand what was happening in terms of players warming up and then being summoned back to the locker room coaches waiting for players to come out and warm up and being summoned back into the locker room. You know, so we saw the decisions happening in real time. Um, It was, it was, I mean, I don't even really know how to describe it, you know, because it was, it was both thrilling and overwhelming and interesting, you know, because as I said, I've been a basketball fan my entire life. So just, Putting your fan hat on, it was so riveting to be right there and to see it firsthand. Um, but then I had a responsibility to tell that story to the people who did not see it firsthand. And my main focus was trying to get as many facts as I could to give the people at home a sense of how quickly it all developed. Um, you know, we tried to show them pictures when we had them, and I tried to put some timestamps on it because thankfully I'd been paying attention and it's strange because I mean, you've covered sports for a long time, Richard. So, you know, like it comes, it becomes a routine and you really don't go by real time. You go by game clock time a lot when you're in the venue. Um, But that particular day, for some reason, I did actually note the actual time, a couple of moments in particular leading up to what actually happened. So it was really helpful for me. And I jotted those down after I realized what was happening so that I wouldn't forget. So I actually had some 
really specific times that I could put on, you know, when I saw players shooting for the Thunder, when the coach came out, when they all left, you know, and, and what was happening so that the, the viewers at home could understand how quickly it all happened and that, and that we're all witnessing it in real time. So it was, it was a very interesting experience. And then just the next 48 hours after that, because we were all chasing the story and what was going to happen. Um, and, and at that point, especially in the middle of a pandemic, you're relying on your sources to give you information because you're not seeing anybody. You know, there was no face-to-face interaction. There was no walking by someone and pulling them to the side and asking them questions. So I was relying very heavily, in fact, solely relying on people giving me information from inside these meetings, inside these locker rooms, so that I could report the, the best of my ability to the people at home what was happening. I wonder for, uh, from your perspective, um, how you see this heading forward the i think at least at this point now um i mean rich probably not wise to actually make a guess on anything but it's i i would i i think it's a pretty good assumption that the tournament will continue and that it will finish and we will get a champion crowd uh again the world can sort of change that timeline but i feel like that's where we're heading um what do you expect heading forward with the NBA, with its relationship to being at the forefront of um, of social issues, of talking about systemic racism, of I would say even moving far beyond just a sports league, and and maybe being even a thought leader when it when it comes to this stuff. There's a larger question as to you know what that might mean for its business and. You know, will it turn people off? Will it not turn people off? But the, I think coming out of this bubble, Stephanie, you can certainly disagree with me. Like the NBA is a different league, or at least the players are a different group of people than they were heading in. And I, as someone who has been in the game for a long, long time, and you coached at some pretty prominent places, and you've been a trailblazer in this business, um, what do you think it ultimately means heading forward? I think you're right. Um, I think that it will certainly turn some people away you know, in terms of the business side of of what the NBA is offering its fans and its product, Um, because they have been so forward thinking and ahead of the curve, ahead of the societal curve, really, um, in terms of social injustices and speaking out against them and not just in words, but in action. You know, the NBA as an entire body, but also each of the 30 teams down to owners and players have all done actionable things. It's not just, hey, get out there and vote. You know, LeBron James launched his voting initiative. The Toronto Raptors have this voting initiative, which I found so intriguing um, because obviously they're not um, in the United States. They're a whole different country. But what they found out through their research was that they've got hundreds of thousands of U.S. citizens that live in Canada and only 5% voted. Um, so they're trying to work on getting all the U.S. citizens in Canada registered to vote and ready to vote in November, which I thought was amazing. So people are doing actionable things um, in terms of being, you know, a leader in terms of our society. They absolutely are. I think Adam Silver, I think Michelle Roberts is helping also, you know, as the executive director with with the NBPA. I think they are leaders. And I think it will turn some people away. And you know what I think? I think they don't care 
because they want to be on the right side of history. And I think that's commendable. I think that when 20 years goes by, 30 years goes by, and we all look at this time, there are going to be some people who were on the wrong side of this, and they're going to have to look their children and their grandchildren in the eye and explain why. And I think that the NBA wants to make sure that they don't have to do that explaining, that they can say, you know what, not only did we speak out, but we did this. We did X, Y, Z all the way through, and we followed it through, and we made sure that we made a statement. Um, I think it's really interesting. You know, I think you look at some other leagues and they're behind and it's not just because their players aren't happy. It's because of their overall policies. It's the way that they've built their structure. And I was on a, I was on a zoom call um, with the university the other day as like a guest speaker to their athletic department. And one of the questions the coach asked me was specifically about Adam Silver and his leadership. And I said, what he does is listen. And that is one of the most underrated qualities of a leader. You have to listen to what your constituents are wanting. What is happening around you? Understand the moment you're in and then move forward accordingly. Don't just plow ahead into this original structure or this plan that you may have developed five years ago. Sure, maybe it was a good idea then. And maybe part of it still is valid. But you have to be able to be flexible, especially in a, in a moment that we're in in this society. It's not just about a global pandemic that has killed hundreds of thousands of Americans and affected millions. It's not just about the tens of thousands, tens of millions, excuse me, of Americans who have lost their job and who knows when our economy will recover. It's not about waiting for a vaccine. All of those things are so important. But it's what are you doing in that moment to not just help yourself, but to help the people that are around you. So I think the NBA is on target. And I think that obviously the bottom line is money when you're talking about running a business and, and they may see some losses, but I'll tell you what, I'm not sure. I honestly think that they're actually going to come out ahead because of the fact that they have had a successful run. As you said, it's not over yet, but knock on wood that they'll, they'll crown a champion. And if they figure out how to do it again, you may be looking at a situation where there are no other professional sports to look at. The NBA could be the only show in town. And if that happens, the money is going to be rolling in with or without fans in seats because people are going to want to put their product in front of consumers. And the NBA may be the only option. Uh, so two things there. Uh, one, I live in Toronto. And I'm an American, so I love that you just mentioned uh, what you did because uh, I have to give Nick Nurse a lot of credit. Hope you're better. Yeah, for uh, oh, trust <laughs> anyone who follows my Twitter feed, uh, quite frankly, knows that not only will I be voting, <laughs> I may f actually fly to some U.S. states to to to, to help out. Um, so yeah, that one that's an amazing um, that's an amazing job by the NBA in terms of um, in terms of being actionable when it comes to. Uh, voting, uh, suppression of voting, making voting available. I think actually one of the great things that are going to come out of this, Stephanie, is just the ability for people to vote in arenas, which I think is one of the best ideas that I've seen yep. um, come out of uh, come out of all this. And I'm again, I'm on the record. Uh, I've written many times about the NBA viewership, and they certainly have a viewership issue right now. I don't think they have a viewership issue long term, and I would bet everything I have that the NBA media rights will go up when they ultimately re-up in a, in a, in a mm -hmm. couple of years, and we'll see if I turn out to be right or if I turn out to be wrong. The last thing I want to ask you about, this is something uh, personal um, to your profession. Fox Sports, not your profession, but your career, career 
uh, arc. Fox Sports Southeast made you the first full-time female NBA analyst when you worked with Eric Collins and Del Curry. And then, for reasons that I'm honestly not sure about, and you can certainly feel free to go into this if you want, um, you were no longer a uh, an NBA analyst. You've now landed at what I think is a great spot, obviously, working for Turner and NBA TV. Very high-profile, high-platform. But to me, like with your coaching background, with what you – and people should just Google Stephanie Reddy if they don't know what she's done in the game beyond broadcasting. She was a coach. Um, and a really great basketball mind. Like to me, like Sarah Kustak, you, you should be an analyst somewhere on games if, if that is ultimately what you want. And I'm not exactly sure why Fox made the move that they did. So two questions. One, I know there's a little bit of time now since that had happened. Um, like are you are you in a good place that you are not an analyst right now? Is that something you 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 hope to to go back to? And do you have any thoughts as to why that happened, even though I, I think there's a great argument to make that you probably have a better job right now than you did before. Uh, that was a long filibuster to sort of get to what I wanted to, to ask you about. <laughs> I, I understand. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, to answer this, the short answer to your question is I do not know why they did that, why they made the change. Um, I can tell you what they told me, which is also what they said publicly was that they felt like a three person booth was too crowded for a regional broadcast. Yeah, that's, no, um, we did it for two no offense, years. But th- that's that's a bogus answer. As someone who covers sports media, it's just not true. But go on anyway. We did it for two years, and to my knowledge, it was considered very successful. Not just from you know people talking about it, but people tweeting and people coming up to me in the street. And while I was in visiting arenas, coaches and executives from other teams were coming up and telling me what a great job I was doing and how they loved our broadcast. People in the NBA were choosing to watch Hornets broadcast, because, you know, on League Pass you can choose the home or the away feed. They were choosing to watch Hornets broadcast, specifically because they loved what we were bringing to the broadcast. So anyway, having said all that, um, I do not honestly know, you know, if that was not the real answer, I don't know what the real answer was. They were very specific in telling me that I was one of the best to do that job ever. They were very specific in telling me that it was not a demotion, even though, of course, it was a demotion. Um, that it was nothing that I did, that I deserved to be an analyst. You know, it was all very confusing. Um, and I will say that now that I'm away from it, I can look back and say this, you know, without breaking down emotionally. I was hurt by that. You know, I worked really hard to get to that position. And I worked really hard when I was in that role. And, and I felt like I did a good job. Um, so I, I was hurt by it. I felt like it's hard to put into words how I felt. I just, I, I was not happy. Um, but yes, I have landed in a much better place for my career. As you mentioned, it's a, it's a much greater platform. Um, I, I feel valued where I am. Um, and also I have not closed the door on being an analyst again. That's really the reason why I got into sports broadcasting was to be an analyst because I will always have my coaching hat on. And that's the way that I look at the game um, so yes, you know, that in my mind, it's still a possibility at some point. I, I don't know where or how, but I do love my role at NBA TV as host. Um, it is kind of like the perfect job because I get to talk about all of the teams, all of the games. It changes every night. I get to have different analysts with me, you know, so it's, I enjoy hosting studio shows greatly. 
Um, and I'm very happy doing it. And I love the people that I work with. But, you know, I've learned to never say never. I, I, I've been approached about coaching as well. I, and I tell people right now, I'm so happy doing what I'm doing. The answer is no, but maybe ask me again, you know, <laughs> because I just, you know, you just never know what's going to happen. Um, so that's where I am. I'm, I'm happy and I'm thrilled. And I would love to be an analyst again. So we'll see what happens. I actually, I have one more for you. Let's end on this. And I just, I think you, you would be a really interesting person to, to answer this question. I saw it when I was doing my prep, uh, for this interview, I saw an interview that you once did when you talked about being a double minority, um, and, and, um, and sort of the challenges that comes with that. And obviously you're a, um, you're both a woman and an African-American and, and I'm saying that a double minority in, in sports broadcasting, which while things are getting better, it, it's still a majority white male business. One of the things that and I think this is probably part of, I mean, I love the NBA and I love basketball just because I think I, uh, I grew up within a New York city and I just, I like the, I just like the game. I think it's a, it's an aesthetically cool game to watch, but there is a part of basketball right now in 2020 that I really like given what I do, obviously writing about sports media. And that's, I find it to be the most progressive league when it comes to a variety of voices, uh, in the league and voices, meaning, uh, broadcasting or writing. And it's the one league where Stephanie, the whole glass ceiling has been blown away by seeing women analysts such as yourself or Doris Burke, or as I mentioned, Sarah Kustak. I don't think anybody blinks who watches the league. If they see a woman calling basketball, or if they see a person of color calling basketball, it's getting better in other sports, but it's not the same. I mean, just, let's just, well, that's not bullshit. Like, it's not the same in other sports the way it is in the NBA. And I wonder if you have any thoughts as to as to why that is. Um, you know, there there are some people who posit, you know, the players in the league are used to being around women. Uh, they're more inclusive and multicultural. And and the game is just sort of more inclusive than than other games. But I'd be interested in sort of how you see it because it is – at least we're going to sort of get to broadcasting the one sport where um, a lot of these old school glass ceilings have been blown up. I would agree with you. I think it's it's the best of all of the major professional sports, um, but there's still a lot of room for improvement Agreed. for yeah. sure. Um, I mean, when you look at especially the play-by-play role, Mark Jones is the only play-by-play of, of color that does national NBA broadcast. Yeah, good point. Um, and even when you go down to the 30 teams, Eric Collins with the Hornets is the only full-time um, African-American or, yes, the only African-American of the 30 teams. I think the Bulls just hired a person of color, if I'm not mistaken, to do play-by-play. Yep. Adam um, yep. And then when you go down to – yes, thank you. I was drawing a blank for a second. Um, and then you go down to the, the G League, and I believe Megan McPeak is the only person of color doing play-by-play for the Washington Go-Go's, and she's also a woman, so that's tremendous. But, yes, I mean, there's still a lot of room for improvement, and, and the sad part is even though there's only a handful, it's still the best of all the leagues. So what does that say about our society, right? Like, we're, we're so great and so awesome over here on the NBA side, but when you look at it, really, we're not, <laughs> we're not really that great. Um, But I think part of it is, I mean, there's a lot. It's leadership, first of all. Um, And I go back to David Stern. 
David Stern was the one that hired me to coach in the G League. The very first year when the G League was still being called the D League, the developmental league for the NBA, that inaugural season, David Stern hired me to be an assistant coach in Greenville with the group. That was unheard of. I mean, that was back in 2001. I was literally the first woman to coach a male professional sport in the country in 2001. Like, that's, to me, absurd. Um, so it's, it's, it's leadership and knowing, again, what your society wants to see. It may not be popular, but you know that it's needed. And so Adam Silver has continued that legacy by really pushing the promotion of women. Um, David Sturt, again, gets credit because, remember, he hired the first women officials to officiate professional sports in the NBA. That was decades ago. And now, as you mentioned, you don't even blink when you see a woman out there officiating an NBA game. Nobody thinks twice about it. And we, we know their name just like we know the men's names. You know, they're just a part of the NBA family now. Um, so, yes, I think it's awesome. Um, and I think the fact that Michelle Roberts is the only executive director of a professional, um, a, a professional league's union of players, that's men, that also says a lot. Um, and then, by the way, look at the job she's done. Like, people are joking that Adam Silver and Michelle Roberts should be on the ticket in November because all the things that they've done together that people thought was not even possible. You know, you go back to the collective bargaining agreement. You go back to the Clippers incident with Sterling. And now you have COVID and all of the racial injustices and the players maybe are going to play, maybe they're not going to play. They figured it out, all of those things. And they did it so well. Um so, again, leadership is so important. You know, people really, I think, because we have become a society of, of people that have all of their own platforms with social media in their hands and they think they can do everything on their own and they want instant gratification in terms of what it is that they're, they want to see right away, I think we're starting to devalue the importance of good leadership. And I think we're seeing it in our society and we're seeing it in our sports. And if you have a good leader, good things can happen. Stephanie Reddy is a uh, host and a reporter for um, NBA TV as well as uh, Turner Sports. She's just back from the NBA bubble where she really did uh, outstanding work. I happened to be watching on the uh, that Wednesday when sort of everything went went down with the Bucks, and uh, I was I was really impressed by uh, pretty much everybody who had worked that day for NBA TV. Uh, Stephanie, it's great. Uh, yeah, it's great to catch up with you. Uh, continued success, and um, and I hope if if it is indeed your desires to be an analyst, I, I hope uh, I hope we see that one day. You're right. There's still a lot of growth, certainly for the NBA when it comes to uh, diversity, and uh, at least I'm sort of at least I have a faith that the league has a real has good faith towards making that happen, perhaps uh, as opposed to some other places. But thanks so much for joining me today on the uh, Sports Media Podcast, and welcome home. My pleasure. Appreciate you. Thank you. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to uh, Renee Paquette and Stephanie Reddy for um, for their time and uh, the conversation. Uh, I really enjoyed that. Uh, I mean, both super smart and interesting women, and uh, I'm really happy that Renee Paquette seems to be at peace with her decisions and uh, – I think she's going to do great things. No, no bullshit on that at all. I, I'm a big fan of hers, and and um, I think she's just got a super talent. 
and engages with people and uh, I look forward to her next step. If, um, if you like these conversations, head to the archives where uh, we got some interesting stuff. The last podcast I did were, uh, was a long deep dive on NBA viewership with uh, two of the most foremost uh, sports viewership experts in the country, Anthony Krupe and Austin Karp. And so um, I think if you're interested in the NBA story, you want to check that out. Before that, James Andrew Miller of uh, best-selling book fame, as well as um, uh, Origins. I should sort of drew a blank there. A Cadence 13 podcast, I will say. We talked about uh, where the business is going in terms of salaries for uh, sports broadcasters and uh I think you'll find that interesting. Anson Carter as well, the NHL studio analyst, uh, was a guest and uh, talked about his his uh, diversity initiatives, which were uh, which were really interesting to hear. And then before that, uh, talked to four reporters who were inside the bubble, or three reporters, I should say. ESPN's Holly Rove, Tanya Ganguly of the LA Times, Stefano, Stefano Versaro of ESPN. Head to the archives. There's a lot of stuff I think you'd like if you're into sports media. Please uh, leave us a five-star review. And, uh, and if you like the podcast, write something on the, uh, the comment page on uh, whether it's Apple or Stitcher, wherever you fill that stuff out. It, uh, it has massive value for us. That's pretty much how we, uh, we stick around. My thanks to uh, Patrick Antonetti and Sean Cherry for their producing. Thanks to everybody, KS13, from Chris Corcoran, Spencer Brown, John McDermott. This is Richard Deitch. We'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast.